Hello everyone and welcome back to the summer series from the University of Notre Dame's International Security Center. I'm Beth Grizzoli and today we're speaking with Rose Kalanick, an assistant professor of political science at Notre Dame who studies oil and international politics. So let's get right to it. Okay. So your research focuses on how energy and particularly oil happens to shape international politics. Mm -hmm. How did you get even interested in this subject? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was shopping around for a dissertation topic back when I was a graduate student, and this was a few years ago. Uh, and believe it or not, even though oil is something that's in the news a lot, um, political scientists hadn't really looked at it or hadn't really done a lot of research on it since the 1970s, with a few exceptions, but there wasn't anything very recent. Um, and in the 1970s, the world was a totally different place, right? We had the Soviet Union. Um, the United States considered that to be one of the biggest threats to international oil. Um, so, you know, many of the things written at that time just weren't generalizable to today. Um, I also was intrigued by it because I found that many of the, the conceptions that I came to the subject with were actually wrong, right? So... Um, there's nothing more fun than blowing up your own assumptions with the research that you're doing, right? And now I get to take it and blow up students' assumptions uh, with said research. Well, that's funny because you you would, I mean, the oil, I think many Americans would think oil is one of the most influential factors in mm -hmm. foreign policy and, and the power struggles around the country. So, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, politicians are forever um, waxing on about how great it would be if the United States could be less dependent on foreign oil and constantly criticizing um, their opponents for not doing more to make the U.S. more independent of, of, you know, these other foreign oil powers. So you're skeptical about that claim, though, and um, I, I want to hear more about that. Doesn't it make sense that our dependence on foreign oil would compromise the U.S. national security? Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to make sense. It's intuitive at first blush, and certainly politicians on both sides of the aisle um, have told us that over and over, because everybody can agree, um, you know, we like America, we like to buy American, and so shouldn't that extend to oil? Um, and isn't it a problem if we're buying oil from regimes that maybe don't like the United States so much, that if we got into some kind of disagreement with them or dispute with them, maybe they could cut off oil to us and that would hurt the United States, right? Well, and in fact, didn't that actually happen it in did. the 70s? I mean, we, the, the U.S. supported the Israeli military and the Saudi Arabia government said, um, we're going to cut off your oil or severely restrict it. And, and we, you know, there was a big scare here in our yes, country. absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that was a very special case that's unlikely to happen I don't want to say never, but it's very unlikely to happen again. Um, so in the 1970s, what you had was a situation um, with the Arab-Israeli war where many oil producers could get on one side politically and had the same shared goals politically, which was to punish the United States for supporting Israel during the war. Um, and so they were able to organize among themselves, um, many of them, to cut back on total production, right? Um, and some of them also stopped selling oil to the United States. And of course, we all know, you know, we've seen the, the photos of long lines at gas stations and, and some of the havoc that that seemed to wreak on the American economy. But there are a couple of points that, that often are unnoticed or that, that people sort of forget about. 
Um, the first one is that many people think that most of the damage was actually caused by some of the rationing policies that the United States government instituted at the time, um, which caused inefficiencies in the market and made it such that you ended up with shortages. Um, so some of it was a U.S. government policy thing. Um, but it's also the case that by instituting the embargo uh, and by cutting back production, right, they shrunk total world production. And so they hurt everybody in the world, right? They couldn't just uh, surgically attack the United States with this weapon. They hurt everybody, including themselves over time, right? Because it, it hurt the world economy. It potentially contributed to a recession, right? And when there's a global recession, that hurts pretty much all countries, right? Today, that's very unlikely to happen because it's very difficult to imagine all of these countries being on the same side of things. Um, the market was also much tighter in the 1970s than it is now. Um, so there's more reserve cap capacity in the market, we think. So if some kind of shortage were to happen, um, it wouldn't be as, as devastating as that was. Okay, let's go over that then. Yeah. Let's talk about what countries are we most reliant on or what, what really, where do they fall in ranking in the oil powers of the world right now? Yeah, well, so that whole question is, is actually sort of an interesting question that comes from this overall misconception about how the oil market works, right? So the United States gets very little oil from Saudi Arabia. Um, we produce, oh, a little bit more than half of our own oil. Um, we get a lot of oil from Canada. We've historically gotten a lot of oil from Venezuela. Um, but to tell you the truth, it's very hard to track even where that oil comes from. So economists especially like to think about the oil market as one giant bathtub where you have many, many producers and many, many consumers. So you can think of it as lots of spigots putting oil into the tub and lots of drains, right? And there's so much trade at just various points in the oil production process, right? You might, you know, produce crude oil in one place, send it somewhere else where it gets refined, and then export it to, to still another place. So it actually becomes very hard to even track where that oil even came from, right? Um, so what matters in terms of the market and in terms of pricing is how much total oil is going into that tub, right? Because it, it just all gets together. Um, it's all priced in one global market, right? Um, so no matter where you're getting it, you're going to pay the same price as anyone else. Um, and it, it really doesn't matter where you get it from. So for instance, if let's say we got 10% of our oil from Saudi Arabia, that's more than we get, but let's say we did. And Saudi Arabia decided we're not going to sell oil to the United States because we're angry about them for something, right? Maybe supporting Israel or something like that. Um, they would divert that oil and sell it to somebody else because that's their main source of income. They have to sell that oil, right? So what would happen? The United States would just buy oil from somebody else, right? It's the same oil that just gets sort of swished around in this bathtub, right? And so for that reason, um, where you get it really doesn't matter. And I, I would guess most Americans have no idea about that. That's that right. That is not the, the story we've been told or the picture that's been painted over the years. That's right. Yeah. So you discovered much of that throughout your research. I did. I did. And it's, it's very frustrating. Um, you know, politicians lie, right? It's a newsflash, right? Politicians lie. I mean, we sort of know this. But um, I find it puzzling because in some ways they could 
they could hurt themselves. So politicians tend to exaggerate how much control they have over things like oil prices. And so if oil prices are low, you know, a president might be totally willing to take credit for that when actually he has very little input on it, right? It's just all de determined by market forces, by global market forces, right? And, you, and oil has the unique um, attribute that Americans are so dependent on it. We yes. like our creature comforts. We don't like to have to ration things. So it, it becomes a very volatile and um, inflammatory subject if there's a fear of that. So that's all fed into these these myths that yes. are flying around. Yes, okay. absolutely. All right. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about domestic production. Okay. Fracking. Um, fracking's big now. And um, actually, the U.S. There, the U.S. oil production had declined. Actually, I think around the '70s was our peak. That's right. It began to decline, but now it's it's in, on the increase again. Um, does that make us more secure? Yeah. So um, it doesn't make us more secure because all that oil still goes into the bathtub, right? And so, if we produce 75% of our own oil or 20% of our own oil. It doesn't matter. We're going to say we're going to pay the same global price as everybody else, right? Um, in terms of global production, you know, people get excited about fracking, and I think um, there's some irrational exuberance about how much promise it has. So it's it's turned around the decline in American oil production, right? But it's only increased it by a handful of barrels per day. So the global energy market is 90 million barrels per day or so, right? Um, this has added a few extra barrels on the margins. So it's not so much that it dramatically changes oil prices, right? Because the supply hasn't expanded a huge amount. Um, it also remains the case that even with this new fracking technology, um, the United States proven reserves are only about 3% of the global total, right? That's with the fracking. Um, how, how long would that last us? <laughs> If we got completely cut off from oil, yeah. how long would that last? This uh, it's impossible to know, um. right? Because it would take years for us to ratchet up that production to actually make up the difference. If for some reason we got totally cut off, which would never happen because, you know, we're so strong and powerful. Nobody can physically cut it off to us. And as long as the global market is there, as long as the bathtub is there and we have access to it, it we're fine, right? Um, so, you know, you couldn't take it all out of the ground right away. Um, it would increase prices a lot if we had to re rely only on that. We'd basically be saying, goodbye bathtub, it's only our domestic production. It's a very high cost production. Fracking is a high cost technology. Um, so, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the best oil that's out there, right? So not only are the reserves small, it's also high cost production. So it's only really efficient to do it when oil mm -hmm. prices are high. You look instead at say the Middle East, the Middle East has about 48% of the world's reserves, right? So when you figure that even with fracking, the US only gets up to 3%, right? It's a drop in the bucket compared to the total amount of oil. And the oil that's in the Middle East is oil that's very cheap to extract, right? I like to tell my yes. students, it's like, if you, you know, if you take a straw and punch it in the ground, like oil comes out, right? Right. Because <laughs> right? right. um, it's so close to the surface and so cheap. So even if the United States continues to increase production over time, nothing is going to replace the Middle East in terms of 
um, where the bulk of oil production in the world is going to come from over the next several decades. Okay, great. Your bathtub image is really clear and very helpful, and I, and I love using it as an example. So, and you even reference if the bathtub were to go away. So, mm -hmm. really, could the bathtub go away? And, and or how did the bathtub, this, this, this joint collective reserve of, of oil, how did this develop? And, and mm -hmm. is there any good reason that it should go away or countries would like to have their own direct source? Um, so it's, well, so the United States, because it's so strong and powerful, could potentially take the bathtub away from other countries, right? And that is something that other countries worry about, right? So China, for instance. China gets much of its oil um, from the Middle East and it travels across the ocean and it goes through the Strait of Malacca. And the Strait of Malacca is narrow and the United States Navy can probably close it to Chinese shipping, right? And so China worries, we know they worry, about the possibility that if they got into a conflict with the United States, the United States could sever this very important shipping line um, for oil, right? And so that wouldn't take China totally out of, out of the bathtub, out of the market, um, because they could still get oil from overland sources like Russia and Kazakhstan. Um, but the United States is unique in being able to sort of take the bathtub away from some countries, right? No other country can do that to the U.S. And again, I would think most Americans would have no idea that was the case, unless I'm wrong. That's probably right. Yeah, yeah that's probably right. Um, because really, as long as, as, as you have so many producers and so many consumers, um, there's really no other way to cut off oil to another country except to block it physically. And mm -hmm. since the U.S. is just the biggest, baddest country in the world, no one can do that to us, but we can do that to other countries, hmm. right? And that makes them afraid of us, right? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. You Let's talk about a recent article you published in Foreign Affairs magazine, and it's called Getting Out of the Gulf. Uh -huh. um, and you argue that the United States may not really need to keep military forces in the Persian Gulf to protect um, oil. You know, tell us more about the origins of that military commitment there. Okay. And, um, you know, why you think it may not be necessary in 2017-18. Sure, yeah. Um, well, so that commitment really originated in the 1970s for the most part. And the thing that, that really sort of got the American commitment going in terms of the U.S. actually stationing forces in the Persian Gulf permanently right, was the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, that was a big deal because, A, it showed, well, maybe the Soviet Union is going through an expansionist period, right? Maybe they're going to conquer other places if they're going to go into Afghanistan. And second, it brought them closer to Iran, right? And, of course, Iran produces a lot of oil and produced a lot of oil back then. Um, it also brought them close to the Strait of Hormuz, which is a, another maritime choke point, right, all the oil that comes out of the Persian Gulf has to go through this one shipping lane that's about 20 miles wide at its narrowest point, right? So there was a lot of concern in the United States. You know, what if the Soviets go over the mountains and into Iran from Afghanistan? And what if they try to cut off shipping, right? This could be really problematic for the Western world. Um, so after that happened, President Carter um, issued a statement that became known as the Carter Doctrine. And the Carter Doctrine said, 
look, the United States is not going to allow any power to consolidate control over Middle East oil supplies, right? And to prevent that, we're going to station a force there. We're going to have a rapid reaction force that can intervene quickly if we think that the Soviet Union is coming over the Zagros Mountains into Iran, right? So that was the start of it. Um, Soviet Union fell apart, right, in 1991. Um, but at the same time, a new threat emerged, and that was Saddam Hussein, right? So it was, not, it was no longer the fear that the Soviets are going to conquer the place and take it all over. And if they did that, that would shrink the bathtub, right, mm -hmm. because they'd consolidate production uh, control, so there'd be fewer other producers, right? Um, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait in 1990, and he starts to mass forces on the border with Saudi Arabia. And so it looks like he might also go over Saudi Arabia, and it looks like he might be trying to cons consolidate the oil of the Middle East, right? So the United States partnered with several other countries to invade Kuwait and kick uh, Saddam out of Kuwait um, and return him to the status quo, but then to continue to deter Saddam from making any other threats uh, in the Middle East, um, we stationed forces there, large numbers of forces in Saudi Arabia, right? So that was, you know, if, if the initial spark was 1979, the, the big increase came in 1991, right? And we just, we stayed there, right? Um, of course, during the Persian Gulf War, we beat the crap out of the Iraqis, right? We, we really crushed Saddam's military. Um, when the U.S. then went in again in 2003, we crushed it even more, right? Um, so now there's no country that really can credibly threaten to take over all of the Middle East oil supply, right? Saudi Arabia is too weak. Um, they don't have the right kind of military forces for it. Iran is actually pretty weak militarily. They can't take over Iraq. Um, and Iraq is a basket case, right? Um, it's weak, it's divided internally, um, and so the threats to oil in the region are much if, lower. What if those particular countries, um, are, and, the, and these alliances are, are in the news and building, what if they ally with the larger countries, with the Russia that the United States, you know, again, isn't on the best terms with? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that is possible, although I think it's probably unlikely, because in the past, when they could ally with the Soviet Union, for instance, the Soviet Union could actually project military power into the Gulf. And so it meant something, right? The Soviets could come to their defense. Um, today, Russia is not as powerful. And so let's say Russia says, okay, Iran, let's be buddies and we'll protect you from the US. That's not really a credible uh, commitment for them to make. Um, it's A, first of all, it's not clear that they have much of an interest in doing that, that they would actually live up to that commitment. but. B, they just don't have the military wherewithal to make those kind of promises. And other countries know that. Right. So you're saying the countries that exist in the, in the region at the, right now, at this point in time, the military forces are weak enough, the mm -hmm. leadership is unstable enough, that That's you right. do not think they would have the wherewithal to rally together to really pose a threat. And therefore, you don't think we need the military protection that we've had in the past. That's right. That's right. Um, there is one threat that the U.S. presence today might help to diminish, and that is the threat to the Strait of Hormuz. So Iran has on occasion said, you know, look, if you boycott our oil um, or if you attack us in any way, we're going to close that Strait of Hormuz, which is going to bottle up all the Persian Gulf shipping, right? Having American military forces in the region 
makes that in, like infinitely unlikely, right? Um, because the U.S. could intervene quickly. If the U.S. left, it does probably raise the likelihood that Iran could do that, but it goes from infinitely unlikely to just very, very unlikely. Because if Iran did that, um, it would be inviting war, right, um, from the United States. And it's also not clear they can even close the strait, right? The United States could close the strait, but Iran is very weak militarily, and they could not really close the strait. I mean, th there's debate over that, right? How close could they come? How much damage could they do? Um, but they don't really have the capabilities, and they also don't seem to really mean that threat, right? They don't have the intention because they also ship their oil through the, through the Strait of Hormuz, right? So they would be hurting their own ability to sell oil, and that's the, the one cash cow that that regime really has, right? So the likelihood that they would ever try it is very low, and the likelihood that it would succeed is low, even if the United States isn't there. Mm. But, you know, we have to admit that that likelihood might increase somewhat, right, if there aren't troops there to respond immediately, right? But it increases from very, very small to just very small. Okay. Yeah. All right. So does, that's the caveat. All right. Is everything the U.S. does and thinks about and actions they consider in the Middle East motivated by oil? Is, you know, the various wars, the various um, deterrent efforts we is it all is it really all wrapped up in oil if this were taking if the act if the events that were happening that are happening there happened anywhere else in the world would we be as involved in your opinion okay yeah i mean that's the perfect way to to phrase the question um and the answer i think is no right and and that's the way to think about it right so so there are things that happen in the middle east that the united states cares about right the united states didn't want saddam hussein to get nuclear weapons right um but it the, that threat was all the more frightening when you consider that Saddam was sitting on a giant patch of oil, right? And maybe could use those nukes in some way to expand his control over the Middle East, maybe, right? Um, but the U.S. still cares about nuclear proliferation, right? We still don't want North Korea to get nuclear weapons, even though um, they're not sitting on a big patch of oil, right? So I would say that, that oil in the region ups the the consequences of anything that's happening in the region, right? Um, and I, it's hard for me to imagine that the United States would have attacked Iraq in 2003 if Saddam didn't have oil. That said, there's no real evidence that it was a war for oil um, because A, we have the bathtub, so we don't need Iraq's oil. Um, and B, you know, the U.S. immediately opened up to competitive bidding uh, any Iraqi oil contracts, right? So it's not like the U.S. went in and said, we're going to hold on to this oil and not, not let anybody have it, not let China have it, right? It's like we kicked out Saddam and we said, hey, Iraq, you can have competitive bidding. Chinese firms can bid on contracts in Iraq, and they did, right? Um, so we didn't try to take the oil after all, and it wouldn't make sense for that to be the reason that we'd go in. Um, but that said, we only, I don't want to say we only care, but we care much more because there's mm -hmm. oil in the region. Well, that, that makes sense. Um, so you, you mentioned this take the oil. President Trump has criticized, you know, the Bush and the Obama administrations for leaving Iraq without taking its oil. Should the U.S. have taken Iraqi oil? Could have the U.S. taken the Iraqi oil? Yeah. So um, let's start with the could part. Uh, the could part technically is yes, but the cost would be very high, right? 
you can't just dig it all out of the ground immediately, right? It would take years and years and years of production to get all of, you know, to get Iraq's oil out of the ground. Um, and so that would mean a military commitment, an occupation of Iraq on a very large scale for decades and decades, right? And that's not a price that the American public seems willing to pay, especially because it's not likely that we'd ever be denied oil, right, going into the future. It's not like we must desperately have that oil, right? Um, so, you know, in terms of could we do it, yes, but it wouldn't really be worth it. Um, should we do it? You know, from a moral, moral standpoint, I think the answer is no. Now, morality doesn't always factor that, that much into international politics. Um, but from a more practical standpoint, if the U.S. suddenly became, you know, very grabby about things, right, taking people's oil and, and so forth, um, other countries would fear us much, much more, right? And it would be harder for us to accomplish anything that we cared about in the world because countries cooperate with us um, to the extent that they do, in part because they think we're generally, if not benevolent, we're generally not interested in taking over other places, right? If suddenly we start taking over other countries and taking their stuff, um, then, you know, that makes it very hard for other people to want to help us in any way, right? Good. Well, I... You know, now that we're on this subject, um, I want to maybe divert a little bit from the oil focus of our conversation. And I, I can't help asking you because, um, you know, current events are, are just so influential in, in the whole the whole power play across the globe. Mm -hmm. You know, we just brought up uh, President Trump, you know. So let's talk about, in your opinion, do you think other countries... Um, read the growing rift between the American people and the president and sort of the turmoil going on um, in Washington as, as making us more vulnerable, as, as seeing us maybe at a point where we really aren't as strong as we have been at other times. And do you think this could, could impact their decisions on foreign policy? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, that's really the, you know, the $25,000 question, or maybe with, I'm thinking of the pyramid show, maybe with inflation, it's like the $60,000 question now, I don't know. Um, so I think the problem, I mean, the, there is a problem with the president and the public potentially being uh, on different pages, right? But I think the biggest problem is that um, people within the president's own administration seem to be sending very different signals than the president does. And even the president himself um, can send mixed signals, right? So you have, for instance, on the topic of NATO and America's commitment to NATO, um, President Trump has expressed uh, skepticism about whether that commitment should continue. But others in the administration, so Vice President Pence, uh, you know, H.R. Uh, uh, McMaster, um, you know, et cetera, have said, look, you know, we care about NATO. We're as, as committed to NATO as we were before. And so that that mixed message leaves a lot of countries scratching their heads, right? So our allies in NATO don't really know who to believe, right? It's very unpredictable what the country is going to do, right? And that unpredictability can, can be dangerous, right? So if, if even Germany and France and Britain, countries we've been allied with for decades, if they can't read our signals, um, could Kim Jong-un read our signals, right? Could North Korea read our signals? And that's a much more dangerous situation, right? 
And if you have somebody, you know, at the very top, Trump, speaking in, in very bellicose language that might suggest that some kind of attack is imminent, right? But then you have other people like Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, saying, well, no, no, we want a diplomatic solution. You know, if you're Kim Jong-un, how do you know what the heck the United States is planning to do, right? Um, and if there is confusion about our intentions towards North Korea, that could make them very jumpy, right? It could make them want to attack us first. Like, if they think we're going to attack them, why not attack us first, have a preemptive strike, right, and hurt the United States as much as they can before they get squashed, right? Because the United States would squash North Korea, right? Um, I'm not saying the United States should do that, but this is a war that Kim Jong-un can't win, but he might be able to make it more painful for us, right? So if he thinks an attack is coming, it's possible he would try to attack us first. Um, and this kind of mixed messaging um, is really dangerous in that regard, right? Because he doesn't know what to expect from us. Um, and, and I think that's pretty dangerous. Mm. A lot to think about on all fronts. Um, well, thank you, Rose, for joining us today. Thank and you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We've been talking with Professor Rose Kalanick from the University of Notre Dame. Her most recent publications include Getting Out of the Gulf and The Petroleum Paradox, Oil, Coercive Vulnerability, and Great Power Behavior. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap.